So this week, church, as you can see on the TV screens, we continue our series, The Christmas Story of Redemption. And in this series, we're looking at Jesus' coming at Christmas 2,000 years ago, but we're primarily doing that while talking about the overarching story of the whole Bible, which is often called the story of redemption. And as we've been saying, as a quick four-step summary of the story of the Bible and really of the story of our universe, it's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And all that means is first, this universe and our world and we at one point had a beginning. And then after creation, at a real point in history, came what we call the fall when sin, sorrow, and death entered this universe and nothing has been the same since. And then after the fall comes God's redemption followed by restoration, which we'll talk about next Sunday. But concerning redemption, starting last week, we saw that God's redemption was foreshadowed in the whole Old Testament story of the people of Israel. Because in summary, what we saw last week about Israel was that, number one, they were truly redeemed by God in a sense. They, they really knew the Lord. But then number two, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that their whole story was intended to show them and to show us that they needed more. Right? They were delivered physically from Egypt. They were in the land and they knew God, but they needed a deeper redemption. They needed more. Which finally leads us to this week. So now with redemption foreshadowed, covered with the story of the people of Israel. Now this week, as you can see in your bulletins, we're talking about redemption promised. And what this means, if we think about the unfolding of the story of Israel as God foreshadowing the redemption that was going to come for the whole world in Jesus Christ, redemption promised is simply how God promised in the midst of that story that he'd give the solution that Israel and all of us need. Or to say it most simply, God not only painted a picture of it with the story of Israel, but he told us what he would do with his promises. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning. And to sum it all up, we'll see that we can sum up redemption promised with two overarching promises, two promises. Now, of course, there are a lot of promises from God in the Old Testament. But what we'll see this morning is that these two overarching promises from God really summarize what Israel needed and also what you and I need and the whole world needs. Which leads us to how we'll go through all this this morning as, a, as an outline. So to cover all this, we'll just simply have three sections this morning, three sections. And very simply, if the Old Testament promises can be summed up in two promises, then first, we'll look at promise number one. Second, we'll look at promise number three, or two. And then since it's the Christmas story of redemption, third, we'll look at Jesus' coming at Christmas and how it relates to these promises. So promise one, promise two, then Jesus' coming at Christmas. And to be clear, though, from the outset, throughout all this, we'll, of course, see how these promises applied within the story of the Bible. But even more so, I honestly hope that you'll see that these two promises that we're going to talk about were always intentionally designed and said by God to be the promises that you and I and everyone longs for and really needs. And so what we will see here this morning, more than you might expect at first, will apply to each and every one of us. But more on that as we go. But with that said, let's begin our first section this morning. And for this, we will be in Isaiah 52 and 53 here 
And part of this was read during the scripture reading. But what we'll see here is God's first overarching promise to Israel and to us. And to set this, this promise up, what we're about to see here, we need to remember just really briefly again the story of Israel from last week. Because as we just said, in the story of the Bible, God set it up that Israel was truly redeemed from Egypt. They were brought into their promised land. But then also, once they were in the land, the whole story of Israel was primarily about how they failed. How they desperately needed something deeper, a deeper redemption. And it's in that context that this amazing promise of Isaiah 52 and 53 comes in. And this text has so much in it that we literally could spend a whole series on it. But for our sake this morning, what we'll do is we're simply going to read it section by section, understanding it as we go, and then after that we will apply it to ourselves. So that said, let's start in verse 13 of chapter 52, and we'll read through the end of chapter 52 to start. So Isaiah 52, 13 through 15, and again, I just really encourage you to look down through your Bibles throughout all of this. God's word says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. In his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So as you can see in verse 13, this is, this is a promise about God's coming servant. And this servant in verse 13, on the one hand, is high and lifted up and exalted. But then, on the other hand, in verse 14, all of a sudden, he, he's, he's so marred beyond human form and semblance that people are astonished at him. And then in verse 15, this servant isn't just high and lifted up and marred, but now he's sprinkling many nations, which just symbolizes the idea of cleansing. And finally, he's even shutting the mouths of kings in verse 15. So that's just the beginning to this promise, which leads us now to see what the servant looks like in chapter 53. And we'll start just with verses 1 through 3 of chapter 53. Let's look down to your Bibles. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So now here we see first that in verse 1, this is all going to be about believing some message from the Lord. And then in verse 2, we see that this servant grows up in such a way where he, he doesn't appear especially beautiful or anything. And then in verse 3, not only does he not appear beautiful, but he's despised and rejected by people. He's acquainted with grief, and he's not esteemed very highly, which if you think about it, is interesting, because he's supposed to be high and lifted up and exalted. But that then, that then leads us to see why this servant becomes so marred, why he cleanses nations, why he feels such grief, and why he was despised. And for this, let's now read verses four through six. And as we hear this, 
Notice here, in these verses specifically, how this is where God's promise becomes clear. Verses four through six. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the servant's despised. He's acquainted with grief. But in verse 4, why is this? Well, because, quote, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And so it's because he's caring about other people's griefs and other people's sorrows. And in verse 5, he's wounded for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities or our sins. And what's the purpose of him doing all this? See the second half of verse 5. All because it brings us peace. And not, and not only peace, but it brings us healing, which here is clearly not just talking about physical healing, but a really being made right and whole again. And then finally here in verse 6, it's summarized with that perfect picture of us all being like wandering sheep who have gone astray. <laughs> and that makes sense. We all know that something isn't right. Israel knew that. We know that. But the point is, God brings us back. And how? Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we are brought back by the servant taking on himself what we deserve. Which leads now to verses 7 through 9. And here we'll see how God says this death is going to happen. So now look down your Bibles again. Verses 7 through 9. He was, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that has led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So here it's clear, especially there in verse 7, that this servant does this willingly. He's afflicted, but he doesn't fight back. Instead, like a lamb going to the slaughter, he's willingly going to death. And remember, for others. And then in verse 8, it talks about how he's really cut off from his people. And then in verse 9, it's told that he's eventually laid down in a rich man's grave. And it all happens to him, even though he didn't do anything wrong. Which then brings us to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So now here amazingly, as you can see, this is all the Lord's doing. It was the will of the Lord who God wanted to crush him. And this shows us that God himself here is fulfilling this promise. But then also amazingly, verse 10 shows us that after his death, what then is going to happen to this servant? 
Well, look in the middle of verse 10, because here we see that this servant doesn't remain dead. (laughs) Instead, quote, see for yourself, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, that's what's going on, meaning after he dies, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And so he dies for others and he lives again. Which finally leads us to finish off the chapter. So I know this has been a lot, but now let's see the result of all of this. Verses 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge or by knowing him shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So what's the result? Well, as you can see in the middle of verse 11, the righteous one, as he's now called, meaning he's right with God, will, quote, make many to be accounted righteous. (laughs) Meaning, He's right with God. He didn't do anything wrong ever. And the promise is that many others will become right with God through what he did. The same is true toward the end of verse 12 where people are forgiven because, quote, he bore the sin of many. And so very, very briefly, that is God's promise here in Isaiah 52 and 53. And I know there's a lot there, but overall, imagine an ancient Israelite in the midst of their story hearing this promise for the first time. What would have stood out to them? And and what should stand out to us? Well, it's the fact that God is going to send someone to finally and forever deal with what's wrong with Israel and with what's wrong with us. Because that's really really the point. We we can talk about all the details, and the details certainly matter. And, And let's now finally be clear on this. The details are incredibly fulfilled in history and in the story of Jesus of Nazareth from 2,000 years ago. And and I hope you really see that. Because this is an amazing prediction. This was written hundreds of years. We know before Jesus came. But for our sake this morning, the promise here overall is that God would finally deal with what's truly wrong. And remember, the whole story of Israel was setting the stage for this. They were redeemed by God physically. They knew God in a real way. But their transgressions, their sins kept getting in the way. Their forgiveness was temporary. And sin kept getting the upper hand. And that's true of you and I on our own as well. And so what's God's promised solution? It's that he'd finally and forever deal with that issue through this suffering servant. It's that he would forever defeat sin, which remember entered all the way back in history in Genesis 3 and has been here ever since. And he'd do it for Israel, and yet he'd do it not only for Israel, but for many nations, for people all over the world. So that's what's going on here in Isaiah 53. And that's why this promise applies not only to Israel, but to us. Because remember, I said as as we open this message that these two promises we'll talk about really do apply to us. Because the truth is, this isn't just Old Testament Israel's biggest issue. But it's your and my biggest issue as well. Or to use the language of the Bible, our sin, right? Our real, internal, God-denying sin, as the Bible calls it, 
is what we above all else need to be redeemed from, delivered from, rescued from. And know we may be used to that, or that may sound really churchy to you or religious, and partly that's just because we're so used to hearing it. <laughs> but in reality, it's true. And it's not only true, but it's profound as well. And that's part of why this message of Christianity has spread all over the world. Because <laughs> it really makes sense. Because think about it. Analyze not only the story of Israel, as we saw last week, but analyze your own life and your own story. What's really wrong with us? Or to say it another way, what's, what's really off and, and what really will make us happier and have peace and feel whole? That's the question the whole world is asking. And to answer it, we may think that we really just need better external circumstances, whether healthier bodies or, or more money or more secure or job or a better future and family. Or we may think we, we just need to be more moral, Think up the, the best way to live and just go and do it. In reality, many worldviews, whether atheism or agnosticism, many religions, that's really what they focus on, those two things, external circumstances and just trying to be the most moral and good that you can. But the truth is, from the story of Israel and from our own experience, that's not enough. And trying to be good is not Christianity. Instead, what we need is a deeper redemption, a more peace-giving solution, and that's really what's going on here. God is finally, finally promising Israel and us the solution we deeply need more than anything. The solution is the forgiveness of our true moral guilt that we all have. Not just guilt feelings, true moral guilt, being guilty before God and before others. This is the solution that gives us true forgiveness. It's a solution that gives us that right standing with the God of the universe, and it's what gives us peace. And God's promise is that it all happens through this coming servant who dies in his people's place, and then he lives again. And we know that that servant was in history, and he still is Jesus himself. So that's the first promise we were looking at this morning. But that now leads us to the second overarching promise of redemption. And this one will be a little quicker, but this also might be the promise that unfortunately isn't emphasized as much as the first one. But we'll see why in a second. It's just as important in many ways. But now for this promise, turn with me, as you can see in your bulletins, to Micah 5. Micah 5. And to be honest, Micah is one of the harder books to find in your Bibles. If you're in Isaiah 53, it'll be about 200 pages or so to the right in your Bible. And once you start seeing all those uh, shorter prophet books with the stranger names, uh, you'll see Micah's in the middle of those. So Micah chapter 5, and we'll be in verses 2 through 5. But now to set this promise up, what we're about to see in the book of Micah we need to take a step back and remember the, the whole story of Israel and our stories as well. And so, the, because the promise of Isaiah 52 and 53 was clearly about forgiveness of sins and, and leading to healing and to peace. And we can often think that Christianity and what God promises about redemption ends there. But it doesn't. And in fact, true Christianity can't end there. Because think of it this way. It's one thing for God to forgive and remove our true moral guilt. It's one thing for him to provide us the solution and the answer to our question of what's wrong with me and is there any answer. 
And he does that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in history for sinners. But then, once he does that, as the story of Israel showed, and as we know in our lives, everyone in the world, and we still have one major question, and that's, okay, amen, but then what? (laughs) Or say it another way, but then how should I live? What then is my purpose? Meaning it's one thing to be forgiven and right with God, but then how should I go live my life? That's where the second major promise of redemption comes in. And it's scattered throughout the whole Old Testament and pictures all over the place. But we'll focus on it mainly here in Micah 5. And we'll start in verses 2 and 3. So look down in your Bibles, Micah 5, verses 2 through 3. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So so what does God promise first? That someone will come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And Ephrathah was just the more ancient name for the town of Bethlehem. So it's even more specific. And second, he promises that this person coming is, quote, coming, from, coming forth from of old, from ancient days. Which, just so you know, in context, shows us that Micah, as he's writing this, is accept, expecting someone special, even God himself, because no ordinary human would be said to be from ancient days. But finally, above all, who will that someone be? Verse 2, he'll be a ruler. A ruler. And that, in very basic, is the second overarching promise of redemption. God promises a suffering servant savior to deliver us from our deepest problem of sin and he promises a ruler. And on that though, let's be honest. It's at this point that we might recognize that sure, we'll admit that we need a savior, but we might wonder, do we really need a ruler, a king? (laughs) Meaning we think, sure, this makes sense. If God's promise of salvation makes sense, if all this about sin is true, and it is true, but why does this promise of redemption need to include this idea of a ruler, of a king? And I especially bring that up because often, and especially a lot of evangelicalism, sometimes even Bible-believing churches, we emphasize a lot the Savior part, which is great. And then, of course, we'll admit that Jesus is is ruler and king, but we tend to emphasize that much less and think it's less important than the fact that he's savior. But here's what I hope you see this morning. In reality, this need of ours for a king is just as important as our need for a savior. Now, it's true of Israel, and it's true of us. And why? Well, to see that, let's read on. So now let's read verses 4 and 5. And as we read these, just ask yourself, Why is this promise of a king such a big part of the Old Testament of God's promise of redemption? So let's read verses 4 and 5. We'll stop there at the beginning of verse 5. Verses 4 and 5. And he, the ruler, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So, so why do we need a king also as part of God's promises? Well, because notice for yourself what this king does. 
First, in verse 4, he stands and shepherds his flock, meaning he loves and cares for and guides and protects his people. And importantly, notice, he doesn't just shepherd in verse 4, but in verse 4, he also does that shepherding in the strength of the Lord. And this is really important because think about it. It's one thing to have a ruler who has much of a heart of love for his people, but if he doesn't have the ability, the strength to do what he lovingly wants to do, then what's the point? But here, the king cares and loves his people and he does so with almighty strength. But that's not it. What else does he do? Still in verse four, quote, and they shall dwell secure. And so now, because of his rule over his people, his people dwell secure. And isn't that what we all long for? Security, knowing and feeling that everything is really going to be okay with him as our ruler. But that's not even it. Then third, at the end of verse four, notice that the shepherd king ruler isn't just for Israel, but his reign goes, quote, to the ends of the earth, meaning it's for the whole world. But then finally comes that climactic part in verse 5. So he rules, he cares and shepherds his people. He gives his people special security to the ends of the earth. But then finally, to sum it all up, once again, see the beginning of verse 5. Quote, and he shall be their peace. Their shalom. And that word really is a good summary of why we need a suffering servant and why we need a ruler. And remember, this word peace, or the Hebrew word there, shalom, does not at all mean in the Bible just not fighting. Instead, shalom in Hebrew always meant, it was always God's word for everything, right and good and beautiful again. It's about you and I having peace, having peace within our emotions, our relationships with God and with other people having peace. It's about our whole world having peace, which is what we all crave. And so the point for us this morning from Isaiah 52 and 53 and now here from Micah 5 is, and yet how does that peace come about? And the answer is these two overarching promises. It comes about in God's redemption through the promise of a suffering Savior who dies in the place of others to forgive their sins and bring them peace. And it comes about through a king, a ruler who so loves his people and is powerful enough to provide his people and lead them and one day lead the whole universe into that so longed for peace. <laughs> and practically then again, this really is the reason why this aspect of God being king really does matter to your life right now. Because let's be honest, when we're on our own, even if we're people who say that we believe in Jesus, if we then try to be our own rulers of our lives, if we say something, yeah, we accept Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, but then we don't really have him as our king, then first we're showing that we really haven't accepted him as our savior because the Bible is clear. Those who accept Jesus as their savior are so thankful and changed that by God's grace they also accept him as their king. But then also if we do that second, then we'll still be like wandering sheep. 
We'll still be trying to do it just mainly our way. And like wandering sheep, we'll end up lost in confusion, trapped in ditches of insecurity and fear and grasping for the next quick pleasure. And to be really clear, from the Bible's perspective, when you read it, the issue with that isn't only that that will lead us into sin, although it often does. Instead, the issue is living like that will not bring us that so longed for peace. I mean, just look at the world. The world is so longing for peace. It's so longing for for what these two promises, these two texts show us, true forgiveness and a peace about something that we know is wrong with us and then true love and security and a future and peace. And yet, once again, if we look to ourselves for those things, if we look to our own self-determination or if we look at our own circumstances to bring that about, then perhaps for a while... It kind of might seem to work as we feel the buzz of self-reliance, especially when we have certain pleasures or things start to be going okay for us. But overall, we know that we can't be our own saviors, our own rulers as well. That doesn't lead to peace within ourselves or within our world. And the point then is that's because we weren't made by God who created each and every one of us. We were not made by God to be our own saviors or our own rulers. Instead, we were made to gladly have our loving creator God as the one who not only forgives us, but then who lovingly and powerfully rules us and directs our lives. And as we know, his name is Jesus Christ. Which then finally brings us to our third section. And for this, we will see how these promises relate to Jesus and Christmas. And finally, turn with me to Matthew 1 and 2. Matthew 1 and 2. If you found Micah, this will actually be only about 30 pages or so to the right in your Bible. So it's not far away. Matthew 1 and 2. And this will be the last place we go together this morning. And this will be the quickest of all. So here in Matthew 1 and 2, we're coming to the Christmas story. And for the sake of time, we won't read this whole passage, but instead we'll read some sections of it. And as we do so, I hope you'll see how it surprisingly connects to the two main promises from God that we just saw. But we'll begin here at the end of Matthew 1. And if you know Matthew 1, this is the story about where Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant even though she's a virgin. And the angel tells Joseph in a dream not to divorce Mary because the baby is really from the Holy Spirit. So that's the story, but for our purposes this morning, what, we need to, what we'll do is we're going to read what the angel in this context decides to say about Jesus. So now for this, we're just going to read verse 21 of chapter 1, Matthew 1, 21. The angel says to Jesus, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so what does the angel say to Joseph about what Jesus is going to do? Quote, he shall save his people from their sins. And and so there it is. Who is Jesus Christ born 2,000 years ago in history? Well, he's the fulfillment of God's first overarching promise of redemption that we just saw. To solve the greatest issue in the world and in his people. To bring about the forgiveness of sins. (laughs) To fulfill texts like Isaiah 52 and 53 where the suffering servant goes and dies for the sins of others, for their healing, for their peace. And that's exactly what this baby Jesus would grow up and do. (laughs) But that's not all that's here in Matthew about Jesus. Because then 
As the story transitions from Matthew 1 to chapter to Matthew 2, from the story of Joseph there to the story of Herod and the Magi, notice then what becomes the focus. Because it connects to our second promise. So Jesus will take care of his people's sins, but what else? Well, for this, let's begin by reading the first couple of verses of Matthew 2. This is Matthew 2, 1 and 2. And notice the theme here. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So Herod was the king. He was ruling. But now what's going on is he's threatened because there's a talk of another king, the true king of the Jews being born. And then if you know the story, he, he assembles the scribes to find out where this king, this Christ, were to be born. And they tell him in verses 5 and 6, we'll read those. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So now, as you can see, this is the quote from Micah chapter 5. God promised to send a ruler who will shepherd his people into peace. And finally, the last thing that happens in this story is what famously happens there with the wise men, right? They follow a star. It leads them to the child Jesus. But then what happens? Well, for this, let's finally read verse 11. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so I know we've heard that verse, but this is fascinating because think about it. Who then are the people here who bow down to this newborn king of the Jews? Well, surprisingly, it isn't just Jews. Instead, this is magi, meaning wise men from the east, non-Jews. <laughs> Which really shows us that the promise from Micah 5 is being fulfilled. Matthew 1, God's redemption has come to save his people from his sin. Matthew 2, God's redemption has come as he has sent a ruler to be king, bringing peace to his people Israel and to non-Israelites, like you and me, to the ends of the earth. <laughs> My brothers and sisters, is God's two overarching promises in the Old Testament and how they relate to Jesus and his coming at Christmas. But that then leads us, as we now come to a close, to one last thing to see from all this. So Jesus is God's promised suffering Savior. He's the loving and powerful King. But now, for this last thing to see, this was something that was hinted at in all of our texts, but we'll see it quickly here in Matthew 1 and 2. And it is arguably the most amazing thing of all. So two overarching promises from God, a suffering servant and a king. But as we talked about last week, what was also clear from God in the Old Testament as you read it is that it was always supposed to be God himself who would save and deal with sin. And it was always supposed to be God himself who was to be king. And so the question is, so is it God doing it or is it this person Jesus? And it's a good question. And we should ask questions like that. But the Bible really does answer it here and all over the place. But here, to see in Matthew 1 and 2, notice, in chapter 1, he's the coming savior for sins. In chapter 2, he's the king. But then also, see it for yourself. It's amazingly clear. Who else is this Jesus? 
chapter 1, verse 23, he's Emmanuel, which means God with us. <laughs> so, so that's also who this Jesus is. But that's not it. Then finally, in Matthew chapter 2, if Jesus really is God, then, then how should we respond to him? Well, now look at chapter 2, verse 11, one last time. What do the Magi do when they encounter this Jesus, the King? Quote, and they fell down and worshipped him. <laughs> and on this, to be really clear, for the monotheistic Jews, that was a huge deal. Because no one was worshipped but God alone. And yet here, Matthew, who himself is an Israelite, a Jew, records them worshipping Jesus, and it's a good thing. <laughs> Which shows us that one last time, Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the king, and he's God himself. And in many ways, this in a nutshell is the story of the Bible and even the message of Christianity. Because think of everything we've even covered in the series, but even this this morning. God created the world. It really did fall into sin. We are all sinners. We're no better than anyone else. We're all sinners. We in this world aren't right, but God promised he'd deal with sin. God promised he'd reign and bring this world back into peace. And he did and he is. And his name, God's name, is Jesus. <laughs> And so the simple question for all of us now is we soon leave here this morning to ask ourselves is, do I really, like the Magi here, in my heart bow down to this Jesus as Savior and as King? Do I worship him? Because that's, that's really what's at stake here. The question isn't, do I believe these facts? Because the Bible's really clear. Believing facts about Jesus isn't saving faith. And in, in reality, in, in many places in the Bible, people believe facts and aren't saved. Nor is the question, will I make Jesus king? Because the, the truth is, in reality, honestly, in this universe, Jesus is king already. And him being king isn't affected by you and I accepting him. He already is king. Instead, the question is, yes, do you acknowledge all this to be true, but then do you trust the Savior for the forgiveness of sins? And then as a result of that, do you bow down to him as king and follow him and not just want to rule yourself? And, and that, by the way, is why the very early Christians, when they started talking about this good news of Jesus to other people in the Bible and in history, it's why they used this Greek word keruso to describe what they were doing, which we often translate as the word proclaim, keruso. And that's because in Greek back then, that verb keruso originally meant something like to herald. And specifically, the word meant to declare a message to people from a king. And so that's always been the Christian message. And that's what's going on here this morning. And that's really what Christmas is about. The king has come. He is the savior. He is God. His name is Jesus. And so the question for you, for all of us is, for me merely as a herald, it's not about any of us, merely as a herald, the question is, will you go against his rule to your own hurt? Or will you gladly accept his salvation from sin and as a result, genuinely bow down to him and follow him as king? And again, it's having him as king that really proves that you accepted him as savior. 
So one last time, church, what we saw last week with redemption foreshadowed, what we saw this week with redemption promised, is that this is the story of the Bible and of our universe. These aren't just words. Our God is real. He created everything, and now everything isn't right, but he's always planned to come to deal with sin as the Savior and to be the King, and he is right now. And for those of us who trust him, we're his. And soon, just like he came 2,000 years ago, so someday in history he's coming back here and then everyone in the world will know the Savior that he is. Then he'll lovingly and powerfully reign forever on this earth and then we, his people, will finally be removed from all the sorrow and sin and we will enjoy his kingly peace forever. Amen. Let's pray.